we'll be covering chapter two and into the beginning of chapter three. Having previously addressed election, ethics, and community, Peter now moves his focus to mission, namely how God's people can function as a kingdom of priests, drawing the lost through faith in Jesus. Peter's use of dear friends plus I urge you signals the shift towards evangelistic outworking of the Christian behavior and community. The words foreigners and exiles have both been used by Peter previously. By bringing them together, Peter is highlighting the background against which these exhortations come. Christians living in the midst of a non-Christian world. The other use of the word exile in the New Testament is in Hebrews 11.13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Throughout the Bible, there's a pattern of election, ethics, community, and mission. This pattern is first spelled out with Abraham. God chose Abraham, which is election, so that he could direct his descendants, community, in doing what was right and just, which is ethics, so that through them, God might bless the world, which is mission, as stated in Genesis 18, 18 to 19. This pattern continues in central texts such as Exodus 19, 46, Deuteronomy 4, and 1 Kings 8. It is within this pattern that Peter is writing now, it should be noted that there is some fluidity between ethics and community, but what doesn't change is salvation or election is always first, and mission is always last. In between, God's rescued people are to grow in their behavior as well as become the community God intends so that they can reach the world. Peter is urging believers to live as though Jesus is already amongst us. He alludes to the second coming. What Peter seems to have in mind is situations like that of Daniel's sex, where Daniel is accused of evil and thrown into the lion's den, but through his good works bears witness to Darius and silences those who have accused them, or more importantly, is the example of Jesus, accused of doing evil by evildoers themselves. Jesus was brought before Pilate, the reigning government's authority, and he's the one who put Jesus to death. But his resurrection was the vindication of his good life, and it silenced those that accused him of doing evil. Look here, ladies. A Christian relationship to the state is a complex issue, but there are some wildly accepted and essential principles. The first is that a Christian's alliance first and foremost is to God, and this is seen in acts of civil disobedience. These can be found in Exodus 1.17, Daniel 6.10, Acts 4.19, and 5.29, as well as Jesus' command in Matthew 22.21 to give Caesar what is made in Caesar's image, which is coin, and to give God which is made in God's image, which is our whole selves. Second is Christians have a responsibility to pray for the secular leaders and those in authority, as in mentioned in 1 Timothy 2. Third is Christians have a responsibility to submit to, to obey, and to honor governmental leaders, as stated in Romans 13. Fourth, Christians are to speak truth to those in positions of power, such as in John 3, Mark 6, and Acts 25. This has important explicit contributions to the first and third areas, as well as implicit connections to the second and fourth. At the end of the day, our relationship to the state is determined by our relationship to God. 
Submission happens for the Lord's sake because it is God's will. We do this because we fear God. Our interaction with politics and governmental authorities is contingent on our relationship to our Lordship of Christ in our lives. For Peter, a Christian's involvement with the political realm can work only when one trusts God, submits to God, obeys God, and fears God above all else. The passage suggests at least three enduring principles. Submit to and respect ruling authorities. To do good in relation to the state and to keep the state in proper perspective to God. Those who fear the state or trust in the state will not behave properly in relation to the state, but doing things Peter's way will instead draw non-believers to faith instead of pushing them away. Peter then begins to address the slaves reading his letter. At first, I had initially struggled with the concept that our God who loves us would be commanding us to be obedient to people that could be mistreating us. So I did a little bit of research. Slavery in the ancient world was different from modern day slavery. The central features that distinguish first century slavery from later practice slavery in the new world are as follows. Racial factors played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were even better educated than their masters. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn, and there were no laws prohibiting public assembly of slaves. And perhaps above all, the majority of urban domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. In Peter's day, slaves could hold high status, high ranking positions in the government. They could be farmers, doctors, lawyers, nannies, construction workers, accountants, agents, and secretaries, and so much more. It is also important to realize that typical freeborn Roman citizens did not like working as long-term employees for others. That was often left to slaves and ex-slaves. For these reasons, there are more similarities between employment in the modern economy and Greco-Roman slavery that one might initially think, at least for some slaves that Peter would have been talking to in reference to this. I found this incredibly interesting. Rather than reject the Bible as ethically immoral, we should realize the lack of condemnation of a social institution is not an endorsement. Moreover, it is likely that God, through the New Testament, intended to transform society by transforming people and did not directly address any societal institutions, especially since first century slavery was so radically different from its modern counterparts. Work was mandated by God for humans when he created us in his own image and entrusted us to care for this world in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Sin added a burdensome aspect to work in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, which severely limits how much that human effort can actually accomplish, refer to Ecclesiastes. But God redeems the concept of work by continuing to do productive work himself, as in John 5, 17, and encouraging work in Ephesians and Thessalonian for our benefit, as stated in Mark 2.27. While work, which includes learning and volunteering, is valuable in its own right, Peter makes a contribution to the theology, reminding the worker that enduring suffering and persecution in the workplace can connect us to Christ. Such suffering also points others to Christ since he suffered injustices in winning salvation for us. 
Slavery in the first century had some things in common with modern labor practices like opportunities for education, advancement, and meaningful work. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that these two are the same. What I am saying is that the concept is still relevant today. Christians should be willing to suffer injustices in the workplace or school or place where one is volunteering, entrusting themselves to God so that his purposes and sovereignty win out. By doing so, you'll be following the example of Christ set for you. Full disclosure, that was incredibly tough for me to hear as I read through the section again and again and again. I noticed that first is the concept of being conscious to God. So that means asking questions such as, why did God put me here? What is God trying to accomplish in me through this? What is God wanting to do for others through this? Has God given me any indication that I'm not supposed to be in this situation other than the fact that I don't like it? These questions help us to be conscious of what God is doing in a difficult situation. Peter spends so much time engaging with Isaiah 53 to remind us that submission to difficult leaders, teachers, or bosses can only be done when one truly understands what Christ did for us and how his suffering brought us blessings. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As I continued to struggle with the concept, I had more questions. Do I put up with an abusive boss no matter what? Do I say something or do I stay silent? How long should I stay in the situation if there is a way out? For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The passage ends with Jesus described as a shepherd. Shepherds guide the sheep and Jesus will guide different people through different situations differently by the Spirit. Submission is situation specific. In general, it means to acknowledge the authority of another and follow their leadership. But a slave submitting to a master looks completely different from a citizen submitting to the government authorities, which looks very different from a wife submitting to a husband. In the case of husbands and wives, scripture makes clear that husbands have the responsibility of loving and caring for their wives, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives submitting to their husbands means recognizing that God has given husbands the leadership role in loving and caring for them and supporting their husbands in this assignment. This does involve some level of obedience, but obedience is part of submission in a marriage and in a relationship, which is different from obedience as part of submission in a master-servant relationship. For example, consider Sarah and Abraham. Sarah follows Abraham to a new land in Genesis 12 and submits to his misguided schemes to lie to the Pharaoh in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Sarah follows Abraham's leadership in showing hospitality to the Lord in Genesis 18, as well as having the males in her household circumcised in Genesis 17, and then having her name changed, as well as giving the son that she loves more than anything to be sacrificed in Genesis 22. Yet she also takes a lead at times, such as in Genesis 16, and Abraham is told to listen to her. Sarah submitting to Abraham is very different from Hagar submitting to Sarah. Hagar is a servant who takes orders. Sarah is a marriage partner who allows her husband to lead, but who also at times provides leadership. It is easy to view a wife's submission as mere condensation to patriarchal culture 
but I don't think that's what Peter means at all. Likewise, Ephesians 5 says a wife's submission to their husband within the theological orientation of the church's submission to Jesus. However, even those who adopt such a view acknowledge that mutual submission is a transcultural requirement for all believers. In this mutual submission, there are times when a wife is to submit to her husband and even, some argue, she's not required to do so on an ongoing basis during these times of submission. This passage is applicable in so many different situations, including wives who are married to non-believing husbands, wives who are married to husbands who claim to be Christian but are not acting like it, and Christian wives who are married to Christian husbands, since Peter uses the example of Sarah and Abraham and both were followers of God, and Christian women who are not married. This applies to all of us. I have heard this passage be preached on so many times, always in the context of how to have a good marriage. And yes, it is true that God wants good marriages. And yes, this passage can be a true blessing in that regard. But the scope of the passage is much larger and the implications much grander. Namely, women matter to God, not just in that God cares about women, but women are essential to the plans that he has to rescue the world. If God's kingdom is going to come in this world, if God is going to rescue this world, it depends in a large part on women acting like godly women. The main message of this passage is to pursue the unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. Peter presents three opportunities to witness a quiet and gentle spirit at work. Submission, eternal beauty, and difficult assignments from God. Did any of these bring about a reaction in you? Perhaps as you worked through the section, you felt anxiety or fear, or did you have a quiet and gentle spirit? With regard to the one verse on husbands, although husbands are not called to submit to their wives outside of the mutual submission of Christians to each other, husbands can choose the path of allowing their actions without words to win over their wives. It may be that the prayer mentioned in 3.7 refers to the prayers of a husband for his wife who is not walking with the Lord. I love my husband. That man was handpicked for me by the Lord. No questions asked. Thank you, God, for Aaron. Because that man has the patience of a saint and married an independent woman. If you're an independent woman like me, reading about being a weaker partner can result in a knee-jerk reaction and it seems incredibly sexist. But the main point is not wrong. Women are more vulnerable. This world is more oppressive to us. Our bodies are used as weapons of mass destruction. Those who destroy a society know that when the women are compromised, the men of that society cannot function. For example, during the Rwandan genocides between the Tutsis and the Hutus, it is estimated that roughly 500,000 women were raped. Sexual violence was the number one weapon used against them. Furthermore, women and young girls are sex trafficked in horrific numbers daily. And because of that, the things that women are more naturally gifted at hold less value in this world in Satan's dominion. Women struggle more with gaining access to the levers of power in society. Think of Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, or even VP-elect Harris. The first thing society attacks about them is their ability because they are women. Even in an egalitarian Western society, women are objectified by men. Things that women are created to do, like childbearing or not 
are not valued by the world's systems. In many cases, there is a great amount of pressure for us to act like men in order to succeed in this world. But God. Remember, as women of God, we are called to a much higher standard. This world is temporary, but the mission still stands. Jesus will return, and it is a constant fight to be in alignment with God. Love as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor, and keep the state in proper perspective to God. Jesus is our shepherd. Shepherds guide their sheep. Jesus will lead different people through different situations differently. You are loved and you are called and you are beautiful just as God created you.